You're listening to the CEO Series with Carl Moore on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome to the CEO Series. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University. Each week, the CEO Series takes you inside the minds and lives of some of Canada and indeed the world's top leaders to discuss strategy, leadership, and today's pressing business issues. Some of the world's top leaders have spent time with us, like Justin Trudeau, Mohammed Yunus Nobel Peace Prize winner for microcredit, and Sir Richard Branson. This show gives you a thin, well, perhaps not so thin slice, the kind of thoughtful leaders leading us in some of the top organizations around. Montreal is known in Canada as a strong hub for startups. It has been continuously ranked so due to the affordable international nature of our beautiful home city. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with three of our most recent successful entrepreneurs, Lucas Frank Coley, CEO of MoveMate, Collins Ogre, CEO of Collins Care, and Felix Apolua, founder of All Arctic. Lucas's company, MoveMate, is an app that coordinates the logistics for residential and commercial moves now. Collins' company focuses on digital health and prevention of kidney failure. All Arctic is a nonprofit organization dedicated to bettering the lives of those that live in the Arctic. Thank you, Lucas, Felix, and Collins for joining us today. So Lucas, where are you from originally? What did your family do back in the day? Hi, Carl. Um, I'm originally from Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, and most of my family was uh, in the private banking sector uh, in Switzerland. So what brought you to Canada? Let me express our delight that you're here living in Canada now. What brought you here? I think I was fortunate to have a mother who spoke English uh, and decided to speak English to me. Um, I went to international schools as a young child and I've always wanted to go to North America to study. Um, and uh, I had a French passport, which meant that I was able to attend a university in Quebec and pay a local tuition. And McGill, I got accepted at McGill and decided to make the jump and uh, cross the pond. You were in the Swiss Army for a while. Tell us about that. I was, yes. So um, a lot of people don't know, but in Switzerland, um, we have mandatory conscription. Uh, and I think there's a stat that only 46% of men actually do it. A lot of people... <laughs> Um, decided to do other things, um, but I decided to uh, do my service um, and I served uh, before um, uh, going to university. How long is the, is the service? Uh, it depends on your rank, it depends on what you do. Um, I spent uh, seven months in the military, did my basic training, um, and uh, I would normally have to go back every single year for three weeks at a time. However, now I'm living abroad, uh, so I'm exempt uh, until I come back and live in Switzerland. Was there any key lessons you learned from your seven months in the military? Many, many. I uh, chose to uh, enter the uh, Swiss Special Forces. Um, it was a lot of uh, grueling training to get there. I started off as a uh, paratrooper. Um, and so the selection process was extremely grueling. Um, and once I uh, was there, uh, not a lot of sleep, uh, waking up extremely early uh, to go do drills, um, but uh, I think I really learned how to push myself uh, beyond my limits. Um, and I think it's helped me a lot um, to get to where I am today. How many parachute jumps did you do? Um, in the military, um, I unfortunately uh, didn't get to jump. Um, but uh, on the private side, I've done 56 jumps, I believe. Wow. So this all sounds like great preparation for being an entrepreneur. Jumping out of into the unknown sort of thing. Sure, yeah, I, I, I like to think so. Uh, but I've, I always wanted to jump out of a plane because I dreamed about flying, dreamt about flying, and, uh, and it was an amazing feeling, and it's still something I do recreationally today. So you, 
You're a bit of a risk taker. I'd say that I'm very comfortable with taking risks. Okay, that's a very nuanced answer. So how did the idea of your, what is your startup? I guess it's beyond a startup now, but what's your company? Um, so the company I created is called MoveMate. It's a marketplace platform in the moving and last mile industry where we help um, businesses and tenants across the moving life cycle. So we embed our software with businesses that have touch points across this life cycle. Um, so these are retailers, storage companies, prop tech companies that have existing customers or uh, tenants that need items transported from point A to point B and we'll match them with transporters. So are you you're not moving just households but organizations, companies as well? Yeah, so we realized that we could help people across uh, this life cycle. So anytime um, people that are moving out need to transport items, whether they're buying furniture, selling them, they're transporting their items from one home to another, uh, we're helping them by connecting them with a transporter. So this sounds quite different than phoning up, you know, uh, Kevin the Mover and they show up a couple guys with a truck. How is this different and how does it kind of reflect today's realities? Absolutely. So you have to think about it differently. A transporter or a mover is considered efficient when it cannot take any more customers. That means that 100% of its truck is being utilized. If it wants to make more money, it has to purchase a new asset to finance that cost and then is stuck in this cash 22 where it has to spend more money in marketing, more money in sales until it can reach that same threshold again. Our differentiation is that we respond to existing uh, demand by matching demand with the supply of other people that have these trucks, have these vehicles and want to make more money. Um, and so we're continuously able to serve this demand and meet all expectations from, from partners or customers. So who are the people that are driving the trucks and moving the things? They're not employees, they are freelancers. Correct, so they're independent uh, owner-operators. Uh, we have professional moving companies all the way down to a guy in his pickup truck, really depending on who the customer is. Um, when you have a student who is moving um, furniture, uh, we don't necessarily need to transport uh, them with a professional mover. We can have somebody who just wants to make an extra buck and the student's satisfied because he isn't paying too much. But when we're doing deliveries for high-end furniture company that have high expectations and the furniture is, is tens of thousands of dollars, we need to have people that have way more experience and have the necessary equipment uh, to satisfy our partners' uh, demands. So is this unique or at least unusual in the world? It's different. Um, there are other um, companies that have, have turned out in different areas of the world. Uh, in Asia, there are a few companies that are doing uh, similar things. In Europe, there's a couple as well. Um, in North America, the market is still up for grabs, I want to say. There's a few companies now in the US that are doing similar things. Um, and based on what we've seen in Asia, uh, mostly, we've realized it's not a question of whether or not is it going to work. Uh, it's more so which company is going to be the one who takes over the, most of the market. So it's a land grab right now. So world domination. Are you going to go for world domination or what's your ambition? Yeah, so we uh, quintupled our um, um, market share uh, this year. Um, we're on track to expand to uh, the U.S. soon. Um, and we've realized that we have a huge opportunity in front of us and we have to go fast. Um, so there's many, many retailers we're helping. There's a few prop tech companies we're helping, storage companies. And so um, right now we're testing out our model in Canada. The goal is to expand to the U.S. And uh, we're exploring uh, the Middle East uh, as well. Where did you get this idea from? Um, I was actually still a student at McGill. Uh, I once rented a U-Haul to complete my own uh, move. 
and I went on these internal Facebook groups um, for McGill students and was looking for to buy furniture. And I saw other people uh, requesting a mover, and I was like, you know what? I paid a hundred dollars for my uh, for my truck. I might as well help them out and make my money back. And that's kind of where I realized it was an opportunity to help people um, with uh, an existing vehicle. And I replicated that model two years later. This time I rented a few U-Haul trucks and in 10 days uh, I helped 83 uh, people move. And uh, I realized that this industry uh, was heavily outdated. There was no technology um, and I thought it was ripe for disruption. Maybe there was something that we could do. And so we sought out to create our first MVP and so a, a platform where we can connect. What's an MPP? Uh, an MVP, so a minimal viable product. Okay. Um, where we could connect um, tenants that needed to move with uh, transporters. Who's we? Uh, my co-founder at the time and myself. Okay. So you could have gone back to Switzerland but an investment banker, which is the dream of a lot of our undergraduates. But instead you went into the moving business, which is probably not quite as prestigious. But you're an entrepreneur. You may end up with greater success in some dimensions in the years to come. Did you think about moving back to Switzerland and being a banker, like some of the other family members? Um, my dad was definitely very uh, curious as to why his son, like he said, uh, why do you want to become a, a mover? Uh, why do you want to move, run a moving company? And I think I always saw the, um, the potential in what we were building. Um, I realized that there was a huge hole in this market. And so, yes, I could go back to Switzerland and um, with my degree, maybe get a high paying job. But there was no thrill there, uh, no innovation. And a lot of my friends chose to go on that route and I never envied them. And so I decided to go through the trenches and put myself in the situation. Um, I think the military helped a lot, just accept that for many, many years to come, I would have to be grinding. Um, but now that we've been able to penetrate and grow and grow and grow, I can definitely see where we're going and the rewards that we're reaping are the ones that we will be able to reap one day. Uh, because ultimately, we only have this one life. So um, uh, the Switzerland and the cushion will always be there. Yeah. But might as well risk it today. I'm, I'm young. Um, I have 40 years uh, almost uh, until I, I retire. So I can fail and fail again. Uh, but I refuse to have that regret weighing over me um, for not having tried. How many years have you been doing it now? Uh, four, almost four. Thank you for the introduction, Lucas. Today, I'm delighted to speaking with Lucas Francoli, CEO of MoveMate, and Felix Apulu, founder of All Arctic, and Collins Ogre, CEO of Collins Care. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CEO Series. Next up, we'll learn more about our other guest, Collins and his startup related to kidney health. Top-notch insight from proven leaders. This is the CEO Series with Carl Moore on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello again and welcome to the CEO Series. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University and right now we will hear more about our guest, Collins Ogre. Where are you from and what did the family do back when you were a youngster? Uh, so I'm from Nigeria. I grew up in Lagos. Um, growing up, my, my father worked in the oil industry. Um, in oil and gas, uh, he ended up, you know, being an executive uh, for an oil company, and my mother was a fashion designer. How did you end up uh, here in Canada? Uh, 
long story, but uh, I wanted to get away. My parents wanted to get rid of me is, uh, is the best way to put it. <laughs> uh, I'm just being facetious. But I left uh, Nigeria when I was 17 years old. And, and uh, the dream uh, was always to go out of the country and get the best possible education that my parents could afford me. Uh, and they sacrificed a lot um, for me to be able to do that. So I ended up in Toronto. I did a bachelor's degree at McMaster, and then I came to McGill where I did my, um, my MD and my MBA. So it's wonderful you're staying in Canada, but you went back home for a while. Yeah. Why did you go back home, and why did you decide to come back to your second home? <laughs> yeah, so I went back home uh, after I graduated from, from medical school um, because I had spent nine years at the time, um, actually a bit more than nine years. Uh, it was about 10 years I'd spent uh, in the West. And um, I, I don't like to admit it, but at 27 years old, I was homesick, right? And, and I felt that I had, I had, I felt like I had unfinished business back home. I felt like I had gotten all of this education and I wanted to give back. And I wanted to, you know, really be an adult in my, in my motherland, right? I wanted to have that experience because obviously I left when I was a kid. Um, and I had an opportunity that allowed me to be able to apply what I'd learned, what I'd experienced, you know, in school and, and, and in, in business and in, in life in general, allowed me to apply it and contribute back to the, back to the continent. Um, so I went back and I, I, I took the, the job with McKinsey, uh, McKinsey in the Africa Delivery Hub division. Um, and it was while working there um, that I observed some of the problems that we were facing in the global health uh, space. Um, and it, it really became apparent to me that the, the solution I felt that could be most impactful was through technology, right? And I thought that, I, which has always been my belief, that entrepreneurship can be a force for good. Technology should be a force for good. Um, so that was when I decided to, to leave my job at McKinsey to, to start, um, to start my, my, my health tech uh, startup with my co-founders. Um, and we came back to Canada because... Um, you know, we were, when we made the decision, okay, this is the problem we're going to solve, which is preventing kidney failure, we then had to start thinking about the resources we're going to need to build that. The financial resources, the, the technological resources, um, the human resources, and, and all of that, right? Um, so ultimately, Canada made the most sense. Of course, this is, like you said, my second home. Um, it was where my network was built, especially here in Montreal and McGill. Um, and there was access to the fund, the type of funding, the levels of funding we needed to build this. Um, and we have proximity to the largest market in the kidney disease space, which is the United States, which sort of gives us that foundation, that um, base camp, if you will, mm. before we then look to expand um, globally and build a truly global health company. So this was the best place to sort of start and get incubated, if you will. You're, medical, you're MD, but you didn't practice as a doctor. Why did you decide to step away from that path and do the path you've taken? Yeah, great question. Um, so it wasn't the plan at the beginning, right? So a lot of it just sort of happened. It looks like it was planned all along, but I did want to practice, right? Um, upon graduating, I still wanted to practice at the time. Um, of course, I did an MD MBA, so it was clear right off the bat that my long-term ambitions were entrepreneurial. But I thought at the time that I would practice for a bit and maybe do a bit of both, and then eventually, after maybe 10, 15 years of practice, go into into the other. Uh, but it became apparent to me um, towards the end of, of medical school that 
my strengths, right, were really on the entrepreneurial side of things, right? And I'm, I, I'm, I would be a, a, a great doctor, but I felt like I could impact so many more people um, through entrepreneurship. And the way I got into medicine, the way I got into business was all about that impact, right? That was always sort of the, the front of my mind. So, um, so for example, if I were the best specialist, right, in the world, I could see a limited number of patients every day, uh, every month, every year. With what I'm building now, with our technology company, our technology can be impacting and changing the lives of millions and billions of people all over the world. So when I you know, did that math and saw that my strengths really, I think there's a Steve Jobs quote that um, every entrepreneur loves to, loves to, loves to talk about, right? Where, where your, your strengths and the needs of the world you know, meet, therein lies your calling. Right? And when that became obvious to me, I realized that I had to throw everything I had into entrepreneurship and building a company. Um, and knowing that my medical education does not go to waste, right? because I'm applying it every single day in what I do. When did you see yourself as an entrepreneur? Was that like in, in high school, you said, I'm an entrepreneur. Did you kind of recognize it back then, or was it later in life? I, I recognize it, uh, yeah, probably uh, when I was maybe 11, 12 years old. Um, and uh, I've spoken about this before. I read a book, uh, my dad gave me a book um, during a summer holiday called Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Um, and just the way the book, the way he described his rich dad, which was his mentor, his best friend's dad, I just really identified to that. I identified to that rebelliousness, if you will. I identified to that taking initiative. I identified to that you know, taking leadership and changing a situation rather than waiting for instructions from someone else. Um, and that helped me um, really frame how I viewed the world. Um, and I think since that, since that moment, I really started to look at myself as an entrepreneur. You uh, studied with a lot of MBAs. Mm -hmm. Is there kind of a corporate mind and an entrepreneurial mind? Absolutely. What's the difference between the two in your mind? I think the big difference is, um, I'll give you an example, right? I think that would, that would really you know, frame this, this, this answer. Um, I was talking to an MBA about an idea of you know, setting up some sort of um, conference you know, in, in, in artificial intelligence, in, tech, in, in healthcare, and really you know, putting Montreal on the map as, as a place where these ideas are coming out from. And right off the bat, the first response I got from that person who's an MBA was why it wouldn't work, mm. right? It was like, oh, how are you gonna get these people? How are you gonna, how much is it gonna cost? Who's gonna, you know? So that's the first sort of mindset. It's like, oh, this isn't gonna work out, blah, blah, blah. But as an entrepreneur, you're focused on the other side of it, right? And entrepreneurs are eternal optimists, almost so far, right? So you're always, we're always dreaming big, we're always thinking big ideas, and we have an understanding that the how is not as important as the why. The why is the first thing, this can be accomplished. And we have a mindset that anything can be done, right? Um, and, and I think there, there are parts of that that can definitely be trained and honed. Um, I think that there's certainly, there's a lot to be said about the fault in our current educational system, 
where we do not necessarily strengthen the parts of, of the brain and, and, and of a personality to push you towards, you know, creating and being an entrepreneur. And oftentimes, um, you know, sort of a corporate type, you're so used to the structure and you're so used to be told exactly what you have to do step by step. And I think that is really the biggest difference where an entrepreneur just focuses on this is the why and then I'm going to figure out the how as we go along versus needing to know the step-by-step, -step, you know, playbook. So, Lucas, we just heard from Collins about the difference between the corporate mind and the entrepreneur mind. Because you had, you know, many, many friends here on the BCom. What's your view? Is there a difference between those two mindsets? And, and, and can you go from the corporate to the entrepreneur later in life, do you think? I think one of the biggest things that is a roadblock for people that are building companies is capital. Um, and often to have access to capital, uh, you need to convince uh, the people that have it that you're, you, your company, everybody that's uh, the whole product you've built are worthy of such, such capital. So I would say that the ideal route for an entrepreneur is one where maybe you already have a pedigree. So you've you know, been through school, you've maybe got that corporate experience because people see that as like you know, a check mark that you need to be eligible for. So unfortunately, that is the standard. Um, it, you know, if somebody works at a big four or you know, a top consulting company and then decides to go the uh, startup route, it's, if I can, if I can say it, easier perhaps, uh, because once they go ask for the capital, people see them as you know a source of reliable reliability. They know they could have a return on their investment. I will say it's very different. Um, some people choose to go the path the path less traveled and uh, go straight into entrepreneurship, um, and it's grueling because unfortunately you don't have necessarily access to capital. So is the corporate setting and the entrepreneurial setting different? Very, very much so. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Lucas Francoli, CEO of MoveMate, Felix Alpalu, founder of All Arctic, and Collins Ogre, CEO of Collins Care. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CEO Series. Next up, we'll learn more about Felix's nonprofit and how it's inspired by his own experience. Exclusive access to some of the most successful leaders out there. This is the CEO Series with Carl Moore on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello again, you're listening to the CEO Series, and today I'm speaking with Lucas Francoli, CEO of MoveMate, Collins Ogre, CEO of Collins Care, and Felix Alpalu, founder of All Arctic. Felix, tell us about your early years. Where did you grow up, and what did your family do back when you were a kid? Great question. I was born in the Canadian Arctic, in a city called Pouvillantuk. It's in the Nunavik region, which is in northern Quebec. And then I grew up in the eastern townships of Quebec. Felix, how old were you when you moved to the townships? I was super young. I must have been around uh, three or four years old. Do you remember being up north as a kid? So, first say, I don't have too, much, too many memories from when I, I was zero to four years old, but I, I was used to going back up north every year three to four times a year, and uh, that's my home, you know. Why did your family decide to move to the townships? That is the area south of Montreal. And I guess it's called the Eastern Townships, so east as well. So my mom's originally from the Eastern Townships, and my father was from up north. Uh, so she initially moved up there because uh, she was a nurse, and my father was working in the, in, the, uh, in the accounting department of the hospital out on the Hudson Coast. So that's where they met and I came about. The city, was it more of a village? Correct. So the community itself in this 
and this year I believe the population is 2,800. Okay. Must have been half of that back in the 90s. So you, you would see yourself clearly as Inuit? Absolutely, my whole identity revolves around that. And were you able to keep that identity living in the Eastern townships? Absolutely, so basically, uh, because my mother spent a lot of time there, she was infused in the culture and was still able to sort of give us that knowledge that we needed to, to sort of stay in touch with our identity, but also the fact that we had a community here in Montreal that we were able to spend some time with and also going up north, that was uh, instrumental for us to sort of keep that culture alive. Felix, so you're an entrepreneur. Do you think it's different being an indigenous entrepreneur rather than a non-indigenous one from your perspective? So my, my, the very first thing I can answer to that is I think being an entrepreneur itself makes you different from all the rest. Okay. So if you add to that being an indigenous entrepreneur, there's no doubt that it's a very unique type of experience to operate in the business world as a, as a native man, no doubt. So it is in some ways more challenging. In some ways it is, but it's also, in my opinion, a blessing. Why did you decide to study at McGill? I believe that being part of an indigenous culture um, has sort of kept us away from the business world for so long because uh, we were still trying to bridge a gap between um, our traditional ways and also the modern world in which we live today. So having a foot in two worlds is a very interesting thing. And I think it opens up a whole lot of opportunities uh, for someone like me, who's Inuk, who identifies as, as Inuk. And it, it just opens up a whole world of possibilities, not only within Canada, but internationally as well. You must've been a pretty good students, pretty challenged to get accepted in McGill these days. So I first started, I started a, a BA in economics and international relations back in 2015. I took a year off, I moved up north, I came back, and then I completed a BA in uh, Industrial and Labor Relations. And after that, I did a graduate diploma in management. I was a pretty good student, I gotta admit. I think uh, it partly came from the pressure that my mom put on me. She said, uh, you know, you've got the capacity. I went to IB school in high school, so that sort of opened up my mind to want to pursue a, a higher education. So yes, indeed, I think uh, I had a blast. I, I, I was always, someone who thoroughly enjoyed sitting in a classroom and doing schoolwork. So it was no surprise to me that I made it to McGill. Felix, you're tall. This is uncommon among indigenous communities. So here's the thing. I think you're absolutely right to say that most Inuit people on average are pretty short. I would say 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. I'm 6'4". And that partly came, of, uh, that partly came from my great-grandfather. He was uh, considered a giant. Up north, and he even made a, a movie called the, Mo the Man and the Giant. So I think I got that, which sort of confuses a lot of Inuit people uh, because a lot of, most of them, like you said, are pretty short, and most of them are pretty fair-skinned as well, and I'm pretty dark. So in that sense, I, I believe outsiders of our community obviously see me as Inuk, no doubt, but sometimes within the community, they're a bit confused. Maybe they assume that I'm a part of another, another indigenous group. You experienced prejudice in high school because you were indigenous. All the time, absolutely. Really? All the time. Professors, friends, sports team and all that. But that's just something that you learn to sort of face as you grow up and makes you quite frankly a better person because you're able to understand 
different angles and blind spots that not everyone has. So yeah, it was, it was definitely part of my experience, but I see it as a blessing and I'm able to be a bit more open-minded nowadays because of that. Felix, what was your first startup? So my first startup um, was called Indigirocruit. I was working with three other uh, native folks that studied here at McGill. Uh, so we basically started this company out of the McGill X1 Accelerator during COVID. But, you know, the set of circumstances that COVID brought onto us and the whole world sort of uh, didn't make it possible for us. So it kind of went out the window in that sense. What was the idea for this startup? Indigi Recruit was a company that helps Indigenous people access post-secondary education by helping them enroll in uh, the programs and the schools that they're interested in. With COVID, it was just not the right time. So what was your next startup idea? So basically, after this failure, um, I decided to uh, launch a holding company with my associate. It was called X Capital Holdings Corp. And it was a holding company that operated three different companies. So we were in different sectors, different industries, and we were kind of operating all that at the same time with different teams in every company. So that was, uh, that was quite a blast. I think uh, we got to learn a lot. Uh, it did eventually fail because of reasons that I can't disclose at this time, but uh, that was one hell of an experience. Felix, what are you up to now? So basically when uh, my business ventures didn't, didn't pan out, I sort of revamped my vision of the world and uh, I uh, started a nonprofit. So the nonprofit is called All Arctic. And uh, basically the, the mission of that nonprofit is to help better the lives of the people that live in the Arctic. Where did the idea come from? Did you have an epiphany one night to switch to that? Yeah, that's a great question. So basically, since uh, I would say 2015, I've been involved in trying to uh, show the importance of Inuit education, especially at a higher level. And I've been working with a very good and trusted friend of mine called Maggie McDonnell. She was the Global Teacher Prize uh, winner of 2017. And ever since, we've been traveling the world to sort of uh, talk about Inuit education, but also to... Uh, see the lens of developing the Arctic and giving opportunities to the youth. So that was really what uh, uh, our focus was, was to try to offer more opportunities to the youth. And education has both, uh, has changed both our lives. Uh, and it's been, it's been quite a blast. And I've been doing a lot of projects with Maggie and we're working on a bunch of other ones that are, that are coming. You can see it on our website, www.allarctic.org. That is a noble purpose, and I think people get that when you talk to them. Does it help to get things going when it's really an authentic purpose? Absolutely. In my opinion, you know, being in the nonprofit sector, at the end of the day, the way you justify your work is by showing who you are and what you care about, right? So uh, having done all these, these amazing things and these involvements I was in really helped me to sort of justify that I'm actually the person who would actually do this job and bridge this gap and I'm an example of it, right? Uh, part of my family went to residential school. Um, and for me to just make it to post-secondary or even finish high school and then go on to post-secondary is a big example. So I think it's pretty powerful. And uh, uh, it's, definitely, it's definitely helped me and uh, the people I work with sort of justify the work we're doing. And a lot of networking happens as well. So 
yeah, we're definitely able to, you know, raise some funds to be able to carry our mandates. And that's the way we, we seek to do it for the upcoming future. Have you ever been tempted by a corporate job instead of being an entrepreneur? Absolutely. No doubt about that. I think uh, that's definitely something that's important. You know, you have to gain this kind of experience before being able to, to have success in, in, in the entrepreneurship world. But I think it boils down to the fact that entrepreneurs at the end of the day were born this way. I don't think it's the easy way out. Entrepreneurship is hard. Everyone knows it. Everyone who's tried it or even operates in that, in that sector knows it's hard, but it's challenging. And I think that's what keeps me in sort of in that, in that circle of getting new ideas, acting upon them and getting all the right people and tools and, and stuff in place to be able to, to go forward in, in the world of entrepreneurship. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Lucas Francoli, CEO of MoveMate, Collins Ogre, CEO of Collins Care, and Felix Alpalu, founder of All Arctic. I'm Coral Moore from McGill University, and you're listening to the CEO Series. Next up, we'll ask Lucas to give us more details about MoveMate and its startup journey. They made it, and they're telling you how. You're listening to the CEO Series with Carl Moore on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello again and welcome to the CEO Series. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University, and right now we'll continue our conversation on entrepreneurship. I'm doing a study with McKinsey looking at, at a certain point you grow to a certain size, then you bring in a corporate type. So when do you bring them in, who do you bring in, how do you retain them? Mm-hmm. Now you guys aren't there yet, but at some point, will you ask yourself, am I the right CEO? But is that a question you would entertain at some point in your mind? I mean, the way I see it is that we're learning every single day. And the challenges we face with my business today are not the same we faced two years ago, and they're not going to be the same in two years. And so what I like about doing this is that every single time I have to push myself and challenge myself to be that person that can run the business when it is big enough or it requires a different set of skills and go get that, that's those skills. But it is true, there are moments where I might be limited in my experience and other things. And so if it's the right decision for my business, absolutely. Um, I would like to take my business as far as I can and then gain from that experience to maybe do it again. But I think ultimately what drives me is that creation, you know, satisfying uh, uh, the, the need in the market out there and creating something new. And I think I'm more of a starter, so I like to you know, innovate, create new things, and then keep on going. Um, if there's somebody who is more able to scale it and take it to new lengths and maybe be that closer, fine. Um, maybe it's the right, right fit for the business. So money, where did you get the funding from? Was it friends and family to start with? Or tell us about the financing path for your, for your business. Sure, so I think I had a very similar decision-making process to uh, Colin. Um, the good thing about Canada is that we're in an ecosystem where, yes, we pay a lot of taxes, but a lot of that money is redistributed to companies that are trying to do innovative uh, things. So we've actually been able to bootstrap our company uh, until uh, recently when we, we received investment. Um, but we bootstrapped it because we were able to finance a lot of the activities we had through non-dilutive funding. Um, so these are grants, subsidies, and loans that are provided by you know, the provincial government, the federal government to allow us to keep building and innovate without having to necessarily put up too much money ourselves. 
But you have some investors beyond loans and, and grants from the government. Correct. So most recently, we've uh, we've received some investment from uh, various uh, you call them angel investors. Yep. Um, a few friends uh, and uh, a fund uh, in San Francisco. Okay. How did you get the uh, funding from San Francisco? Tell us that story. Something from the Valley. Sure. So we actually fundraised uh, this year. Um, it was a very grueling process because, as we all know, the market uh, completely tumbled. Um, and so fundraising at this time and during the summer was extremely grueling, uh, very, very, very grueling. Um, and so we cold emailed hundreds of investors. Um, I went in San Francisco in person to investor meetups. I hired a firm to reach out to more people. I went to this conference, that event, um, try to get as many warm introductions as I could, leverage the ecosystem I was already in in Montreal to get all these meetings. And uh, ultimately, um, when I was in Palo Alto, I was able to speak with a, a fund who believed in what we were doing um, and who decided to, 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 uh, to be the lead in our most recent round. That sounds like a grueling mental health kind of, like hundreds of phone calls. Going to conferences and you don't know many people, yeah. like this is mentally tough things. Did you, what networks did you use of any to help you in that process? Was it your friends from school or what networks were yeah. important to you? So, I, I mean, I think I always want, I knew I always wanted to go on this path and I've been trying to set up myself for success because it's, it's all about beating the odds. We're historic, I mean, statistically, startups fail, uh, most of them. And so every single day I'm working on maximizing my odds of, of getting there. And so in Montreal, we're lucky enough to be in an ecosystem where we went through the McGill X1 Accelerator. We're in, in another incubator now in, in, uh, in Montreal called Centec. There's so many different programs and all of them allow us to gain access to resources, people who have those connections. And so through one person introduced me to that person who introduced me to another and ultimately led us to uh, gain access to uh, this network of um, investors, which we were able to tap into and ultimately led to us closing. So Canada's not a bad place. Montreal's not a bad place to be, actually. No, it's a pretty, it's a pretty great, great place, except for uh, the winter months, but yes. <laughs> well, you're Swiss. I better skiing back home. Yes. <laughs> There's an interesting idea that uh, you know, I teach in class called Blue Ocean, Red Ocean, I don't know if you've ran into that idea. Which ocean, blue or red, are you in your startup? The market we're in is extremely fragmented. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of players out there. Um, I think the opportunity for us uh, in this um, ocean of, of competitors is the fact that there is no uh, standard um, and there's no company or there's very little companies out there that are able to service uh, the man in multiple markets simultaneously. Um, and so I'm not sure uh, which ocean we're in, to be honest. Well, in some ways, it's the blue ocean saying, the red ocean, there's lots of competition, there's blood in the water, it's tough out there. But by taking a different business model, correct, you've kind of changed the rules and you're, there's not direct competitors at one level because you're relatively unique maybe not unique, but unusual yeah. in the world. So, so we see our, our differentiation where when we approach these existing partners, which have all the demand, which have all the volume, we're able to satisfy their needs and listen to them and serve them in multiple markets, which ultimately means that the supply, so the transporters that are out there, will need to abide by our rules um, and will become complementary to our platform. So we will actually be hiring uh, comp competitors because we're going to be 
setting uh, you know, the, the quota on how things should be operating, not the other way around. And that's the shift we're seeing right now where, is where now transporters rely on us to get more customers. Uh, whereas when we, were, when we were starting off, they were like, oh, why should we work with, uh, with you guys? Well, now they're lining up to work with us because we have so much demand um, and they want to plug into our system. So you're in Toronto in a fairly big way. We are in six cities in Canada and we're expanding to Toronto uh, before the end of the year. So why'd you go to another city besides the mother of all cities in Canada? Why, why not go to the big market? Sure. So we don't necessarily choose, oh, let's go in this market over that market. We go where our partners are. Okay. Um, so we acquire a new partner, uh, an existing furniture company, for example, uh, and we see where their operations are. And then when they need a service in a different market, we expand with them there. And now we have partners that are in Toronto. So that makes sense for us. Well, do you have employees in all these cities? Or is it done largely on the uh, So we don't necessarily need to be uh, physically there. That's the whole point of our business model. Um, but our employees are all over the country today. There's an interesting idea that the Demeray family is doing here in Montreal, and I've seen it in the Silicon Valley. In fact, last weekend's show was with the guys doing this uh, McGill grad in the Valley, where instead of having pain, where both of you felt pain of moving, of you know your aunt being sick with kidney disease and things where you... It, there's a personal element to it. What they do is they get ex-McKinsey, BCG people and analyze an industry and say, how do we reinvent it? Then we'll go find a CEO and provide funding. And it's great to have you know, funders like that and the connections the Demarais have. So it's quite a different approach. What do you think of that kind of approach from your experience? Do you have any comments on it, Collins? Um, I, I think there's there's many ways to go about building a company, right? Um, and I think that you have to know yourself and you have to know what works best for you and what you identify best to. Um, if you look at, if you go back into history and you look at some of the greatest companies that have been built, um, they've started from scrappy entrepreneurs, right? They've started from entrepreneurs who, you know, had a pain and started building and, and came from not in and built up. Um, and I think uh, one of my entrepreneurial heroes, uh, Vinod Kozla, talks a lot about this, where there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of benefit, a lot of value in having a founder as the leader of a company, right? Like an mm. actual founder. Um, and I think when you go with the, the approach that you described, you lose a lot of the charm, right? That comes with the creativity, the, the creativity and, and all of that, and that, that scrappiness that comes with being, you know, being an entrepreneur. This has been the CEO Series. Thank you for speaking with us today, Lucas, Collins, and Felix. I'd also like to take a moment to hear from one of my undergraduate students and the show producer of the show, Gabby Hartshorn Mel. Gabby, what's your take? Very quickly, I wanted to bring up the idea of risk and the entrepreneurial mindset. All of our guests today came from backgrounds, whether through medicine, the startup world, right out of university, or the military, that shaped their aversion to risk and allowed them to keep going. Thank you, Gabby. It's certainly vital for an entrepreneur to be comfortable with risk. Thank you also to our technical producer, Marco Companion, our scriptwriter, Stephanie Richet. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. À la prochaine. Hello, and welcome to another Producers Cut edition of the CEO series. My name is Gabby Hartshorn-Mel, and I am a student of Professor Carl Moore at McGill. I am also the producer of this show. Professor Moore has granted me the opportunity to share my favorite parts of our newest episode, the triple interview with three entrepreneurs who have founded startups based in Montreal. I'm very excited to get started. I wanted to jump right in with this question from Professor Moore. So 
You could have gone back to Switzerland, but an investment banker, which is the dream of a lot of our undergraduates. But instead, you went into the moving business, which is probably not quite as prestigious. But you're an entrepreneur. You may end up with greater success in some dimensions in the years to come. Did you think about moving back to Switzerland and being a banker, like some of the other family members? Um, my dad was definitely very uh, curious as to why his son, like he said, uh, why do you want to become a, a mover? Uh, why do you want to move, run a moving company? And I think I always saw the, um, the potential and what we were building. Um, I realized that there was a huge hole in this market. And so, yes, I could go back to Switzerland and um, with my degree, maybe get a high paying job. But there was no thrill there, uh, no innovation. And a lot of my friends chose to go on that route and I never envied them. And so I decided to go through the trenches and put myself in the situation. Um, I think the military helped a lot, just accept that for many, many years to come, I would have to be grinding. Um, but now that we've been able to penetrate and grow and grow and grow, I can definitely see where we're going and the rewards that we're reaping are the ones that we will be able to reap one day. Uh, because ultimately, we only have this one life. So um, uh, the Switzerland and the cushion will always be there. Yeah. But might as well risk it today. I'm, I'm young. Um, I have 40 years uh, almost uh, until I, I retire. So I can fail and fail again. Uh, but I refuse to have that regret weighing over me um, for not having tried. This perspective resonates with my own very much in this answer. These entrepreneurs are not that much older than me, and so I think that I'm beginning to find myself in a similar headspace. Risk is uncertain, and so many students with an aversion to this uncertainty line themselves up for a traditional career path, and this is indeed a very responsible thing to do. However, the opportunity cost of entering the corporate rat race, so to speak, is that you sacrifice the opportunity to form your own unique path. Young adults like myself are lucky enough to graduate university without any sort of significant baggage or responsibility to consider. This is the best time for us to take risks, learn from them, and grow our skills. Given we have three startup founders in our midst, I think it's perfect to offer a comparison of our three guests' backgrounds. Each brought a unique skill set to the startup world. One of our entrepreneurs served seven months in the Swiss military. Was there any key lessons you learned from your seven months in the military? Many, many. I uh, chose to uh, enter the uh, Swiss Special Forces. Um, it was a lot of uh, grueling training to get there. I started off as a uh, paratrooper, um, and so the selection process was extremely grueling. Um, and once I uh, was there, uh, not a lot of sleep, uh, waking up extremely early uh, to go do drills. Um, but uh, I think I really learned how to push myself uh, beyond my limits. Um, and I think it's helped me a lot um, to get to where I am today. Another one went to medical school and then decided to focus on the entrepreneurial side of medicine as he describes next. Uh, but it became apparent to me um, towards the end of, of medical school that my strengths right, were really on the entrepreneurial side of things. Right? And I'm, I, I'm, I would be a, a great doctor, but I felt like I could impact so many more people um, through entrepreneurship. And, the way I got into medicine, the way I got into business was all about that impact, right? That was always sort of the, the front of my mind. So, um, so for example, if I were the best specialist, right, in the world, I could see a limited number of patients every day, uh, every month, every year. With what I'm building now with our technology company, our technology can be impacting and changing the lives 
of millions and billions of people all over the world. Both these CEOs bring a unique skill set to the table. Medicine directly relates to the focus of Mr. Ogre's startup, Kidney Health. For Mr. Francioli, his venture provided a skill set less direct, although arguably just as applicable, regarding soft management skills. Both the military and medical fields are competitive, high-stakes areas, and so I think both CEOs would have gained similar transferable skills from their past experiences. These traits are likely common among startup founders, given the high-risk, tumultuous environment startups must face to reach the next level. Clearly, both are a certain type of individual, one that need to be one they need to be in order to work in the startup world. Later in the interview, Mr. Ogre seems to agree with my viewpoint when he highlights the differences between an MBA grad and an entrepreneur. There also was a critique of the education system. It needs to be reworked to somehow spark, for lack of a better word, the parts of the brain related to creativity and exploration rather than the parts that reinforce order and structure, which would be the parts that foster the corporate type of individual. I would argue that the experiences I referenced before by both Mr. Francioli and Mr. Ogre serve as the necessary catalyst that shaped each startup founder in the entrepreneurial types that, into the entrepreneurial types they are today. To end off this session of the producer's cut, I wanted to point out something Mr. Alpalu said that really stood out to me about being an indigenous entrepreneur. Felix, so you're an entrepreneur. Do you think it's different being an indigenous entrepreneur rather than a non-indigenous one from your perspective? So my... My, the very first thing I can answer to that is I think being an entrepreneur itself makes you different from all the rest. Okay. So if you add to that being an indigenous entrepreneur, there's no doubt that it's a very unique type of experience to operate in the business world as a, as a native man, no doubt. Bridging a gap between traditional indigenous culture and the more mainstream corporate world has provided Mr. Alpalu with a very interesting perspective. It is my understanding that a lot of traditional indigenous values often conflict with that of the corporate world, and so being able to see through both lens, as is the case with him, can provide a much wider and comprehensive perspective. I think this could serve as an important asset, especially for an entrepreneur, when dealing with complex problems or challenges. I think that is a nice way to end off. Thank you very much for tuning in to this mini-episode of Professor Moore's CEO series. It has been an honor to share my ideas with you. Thank you very much, Professor Moore, for allowing me the space to contribute my thoughts. As always, à la prochaine.